Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, good morning to our campuses joining us here this morning as we open God's Word. And, uh, you know, I, I met a number of new people uh, already here this morning, and I want to uh, welcome you. And it uh, reminds me of something that happened two weeks ago. So I was in the, in the commons greeting people, uh, as I oft do, and uh, I, there's this family, I didn't recognize them, sure enough they're new, I went up to them and, and I, I said, hello, I said, I'm Pastor Steve. They said, hi, we're the Romans. <laughs> I thought, well, this is the perfect time for you to come to our church, we're doing a whole series in the book of Romans, and they were very nice people, and I, I hope that they're back, perhaps here somewhere, I don't know, but uh, Made me wonder if I was going to meet this week the Thessalonians. Any Thessalonians family here? Something like that, I don't know. But uh, in a sense, we are all Romans right now at Bethel Church because we are indeed studying the book of Romans and doing this deep dive into this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And uh, we're now in chapter 6, which is a transition chapter as Paul has spent all of this time so far explaining the necessity of being saved from the wrath of God and how that is accomplished by God through faith in Jesus in what is known as justification, as God declares us righteous and then promises to treat us as such forever. Chapter 6 through 8 deal with this change then in our relationship both to God and also to our ancient enemy, sin. And what the the big point that he's going to make here is that sin is no longer our master. Because of what Christ has done, we have a new king, and it's not sin, it is Jesus. And so it is this transition from explaining our our freedom from the penalty of sin, which is what justification is, to our freedom from the presence of sin and the power of sin in our life, which is known as sanctification. Sin is no longer the primary identity of our life. It's not how God sees us anymore, and it shouldn't be how we in practice see ourselves either. So Paul now is going to talk about this new thing, what he is calling newness of life. Now, this little summary here begs a question, and I'm going to guess this is a question, if you're like me, that you have wondered about. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably have asked the question, How does some guy's death 2,000 years ago, how do do I connect with what he did? Like, how does what he did make some substantial difference in my life, my status before God? Even if you grant the central claims of Christianity, let's say you grant that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, that he was incarnated into this world, that he indeed died on the cross, and Even if you grant the central miracle of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it still begs the question, how does what Jesus did back then make a change? How do I connect with what he did in some way that actually changes my life and changes my eternity, indeed my my destiny? And it's to this now that Paul... uh, uh, transitions to explain to us and to help us understand what is is going on here. So I'm going to read our text. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're studying today verses 3 and 4, Romans 6. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism uh, in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. May God bless his word to us today. Now, as we've already seen, Paul is addressing a charge that was made against him as he went into the synagogues and as he preached in the, in the marketplaces there. Uh, there were people that heard him explain that we are not saved by obeying the law. We are not saved by being righteous on our own. We are saved uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there were people that heard him teach that and they said, wait a second. So you're saying that when, when we sin, God's grace covers our sin. Yes. And you're saying that when we sin a lot, God's grace is so magnificent, it superabounds over all of our sin. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, then why don't we go out and sin a lot? Why don't we go out and sin epically that God's glory might be seen by more people? Amen. So Paul addresses now this claim, and as we saw last time, his response to it, by no means. It's the strongest language the Greek allows it's not, it borders on a profanity that's like just how strongly he says there's no way that we should ever view sin as being acceptable in the Christian life he asks the question how can we continue in sin when we died to sin which brings up an interesting question died to sin I don't I don't recall dying to sin do you remember dying to sin I I've never attended a funeral for sin uh, as we celebrate a death to to sin. So when did I exactly die to sin? And if you're a Christian here today, you might even ask the question, if I died to sin, why is sin still so much a part of my life? Like, it doesn't seem to me that sin is dead. It seems to me that sin is all too alive in my personal experience. So what is Paul talking about here when he says that we died to sin? And Paul, you can sense Paul's like, he's putting himself in the place of the Romans who are hearing this or maybe reading this letter, and he could just tell they need an illustration. Preachers do that. We kind of tend to know when people are like going, whoa, this is getting over my head. Let me illustrate it. And so Paul, sensing a need for an illustration, goes to baptism. Baptism is his illustration of the point that he's making here. He bridges it by saying, do you not know? We might say it this way. Hey, we all know such and such. And there's an assumption that there's a point of agreement and understanding. Do you not know? And so just to pause then on this point and make a few comments about baptism that we see even in this implicitly. We find here that in the early church, there was a universal understanding of the purpose and the role of baptism. So much so that Paul could write to them, he's never been there, he's never taught them on baptism, he's never even met them. But he knows that they're Christians and so he can say, hey, as you know about the role of baptism and be confident that at the church at Rome, amongst the Christians there, they understood what baptism was all about. He didn't have to stop and say, hey, I know that probably you haven't been taught very well, I am an apostle, let me explain to you the meaning of baptism. No. To be a Christian in the early church 
was to understand baptism and to be baptized. You didn't have in the early church uh, non-baptized Christians running around the place. Because to be a Christian in the early church meant that you trusted in Jesus Christ and you got baptized. Why? Because Jesus told you to. Jesus told you to. Now in the modern church, maybe even in our church, we, we have people who uh, view it as sort of a, an add-on, an optional add-on. Where when I get around to it or when I feel super spiritual, then I will get baptized. You would be an anomaly. In your, in your small group in the first century, they would look at you in astonishment. Like, you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Okay? And I might say that to you right now in love. What's wrong with you? <laughs> if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. Another example of this is the Ethiopian eunuch. The story of Philip uh, in the book of Acts where uh, he comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch who would have been a member of the high court, an, an, an African man. And he's reading Isaiah 53. And uh, Philip says, hey, can I explain to you what you're reading? And he's like, yeah, man, I need some help. And so Philip gets in the chariot, explains Jesus from Isaiah 53. And they come up to a body of water. And what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? What keeps me from being baptized? He goes from knowing nothing to a chariot gospel explanation from uh, Philip where he understood just from that little explanation the importance of baptism. He doesn't say, hey, you know, why can't I trust in Jesus? Apparently he already had, but he understood to be a follower of Jesus is to be baptized. So this and many other places we find the role of baptism being uh, incredibly important. And so the Apostle Paul here now, wanting to help them understand how we died to sin in Jesus looking for an illustration, goes to baptism, and he is not worried that any of them would think that baptism actually is the thing that saves them. In fact, look again at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, that's a risky thing to say, unless you're really confident that everybody understands that baptism is a symbol of actually genuine saving faith. Now, I heard John Piper teaching on this. I got some of the, my material from him, and his illustration here, I just can't beat it, so I'm just going to share it with you, okay? Uh, because there are, there are entire denominations. In fact, I know in our church, we have many people that come from denominations where uh, they don't minimize baptism. They actually see statements like this, and they think to themselves, Oh, baptism is the thing that connects me with Jesus, that we are saved by baptism. It's known as baptismal regeneration. And they would say you're not actually under the grace of God until you are baptized. And so they are very much in a hurry to get you in the baptismal. So somebody like that could maybe read a verse like this in isolation and think to themselves, baptism is the thing that saves us. And yet, why do we say uh, no to that? Why do we say those people are wrong? Because for five chapters, what has Paul been doing? He's been explaining the nature of the gospel. And over and over again, he has been saying what? That we are justified by baptism? No, we're justified by what? Faith. Bam, 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 over and over and over again. For him to get to chapter six and go, oh, now actually we're, we're justified by baptism. 
would be such a departure from everything he's saying that we should look at this. It's not even a possibility that's what he means. So again, the illustration uh, that, that I think is so helpful is to think about a, we- a wedding ceremony. Now, as I do that, standing here, we're actually roughly right here. I got married on this very stage. Many of you were there. Uh, it's, it, it, it reminds me of what always weddings have. Weddings always have a ring exchange. And the traditional language in a ring exchange in a wedding is, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, if you didn't know anything about marriage and you happened into a wedding ceremony and you happened in at that precise moment and you thought to yourself, what unites a husband and a wife? And you heard, with this ring, I thee wed, you could come to the conclusion, ah, it's the ring that unites a man and woman in marriage. It's wearing a ring that makes you marry. And of course, we would say to that, what? Silly, wrong. You should have been here like five minutes before because five minutes before in the ceremony there was what? The vows. And we all know what unites a husband and wife in marriage is covenantal vows that they make to one another. The ring is a symbol of that love commitment that is made. We all get that and we get it so clearly that we can make a statement like with this ring I thee wed and not be afraid that some, you know, person is going to be confused about what actually makes this man and woman married. Paul, having the same confidence that after five chapters of explaining that we are saved by faith, now draws on the analogy of baptism, and he is unafraid that anybody's going to think to themselves, oh wait, I guess we're saved by baptism. And he inserts baptism into this illustration of the truth. Why? Because baptism symbolizes in water what has happened to us in Christ. Okay? Baptism symbolizes in water what has happened to us in Christ. And we know this because of what is hinted at in verse 3 and what is made clear in verse 5. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him... What's he talking about here? What is Paul talking about? Now, I'm going to risk saying something that I just think is true. I think what we're talking about today is the most wonderful doctrine that likely many of us have never heard of. Many of us have never heard of. It reminds me of a restaurant in the New Buffalo, Michigan area that several years ago I kind of stumbled across by accident. And I remember to this day, the first time that I went there, and the first time that I ate their food, succulent, wonderful food. And I wouldn't say it was transforming to my life, but it was awesome, like really, really awesome. And this New Buffalo, Michigan restaurant, it's like, I've been there many times since, it's, it's almost like when you go there, okay, packed, it's packed, but it's packed with locals. It's like a secret that the locals have. They don't want anybody else to know it's hard enough to get a spot in the restaurant anyway. And so 
Uh, it's not one of the well-known New Buffalo restaurants. If I said the name, the vast majority of you have never heard of it, which is the way I want to keep it, okay? <laughs> I don't care what you offer me after this service. I am not going to tell you the name of the restaurant. Now, I'll tell you, after first service, I was a little dismayed at how few people were coming up and talking to me about the doctrine I preached and how many of them were guessing the restaurant I meant when I said this restaurant in the New Buffalo area. I'll also add, if I have taken you to this restaurant, you are also sworn to secrecy. If I find out that you let the cat out of the bag, I'm going to find the receipts and you're going to pay me back for the uh, dinner that we had there. And most of you are saying, wait a second, we paid. What are you talking about? This doctrine is like that restaurant, amazingly wonderful, and yet so few Christians have heard about it, think about it, mention it in a prayer. Now, unlike the restaurant, if you're a Christian here today, you've actually dined on this doctrine and you didn't even know it, which is another great example of how God blesses us in ways that we don't even begin to realize. There are things that he's doing for us all the time that in our finite human understanding. We don't, we don't totally get all the things that God is doing all the time for us in ways that we don't begin to understand. So what is the doctrine? I'm going to give you, this is what the theologians call it. I'm going to give you this as the real name of it. Okay, it's called this, union with Christ. Okay, union with Christ. Class, say it with me. Union with Christ. Eminent theologian John Murray calls this doctrine the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, the central one. Now, how could you be a Christian for so many years? I could ask the question if you come to this church, how could I be a pastor and I've not preached on this and taught on this? I'm clearing the air today. What a wonderful doctrine this is. And I hope by the time we're done, we've begun to understand it because it's the basis of so much of what Paul's gonna say in chapter six through eight here. Union with Christ. What to know about it? First of all, it is a work of the Holy Spirit, okay? It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is answering the question that I began with. How is some guy dying on a cross and being resurrected 2,000 years ago, how am I connected to what he has done? We are connected through union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Here's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all made to drink of one spirit. Wonderful verse, has so much to say about unity in the church, racial unity in the church, etc. But here as we talk about union with Christ, we find that we are united to Jesus and one another by the Holy Spirit in salvation. Secondly, here's something that if you've been a Christian very long, you've seen many, many times. The little phrase, in Christ. In Christ is shorthand for union with Christ. So let me give you some examples. You've probably read these many times and just maybe it never connected in your brain. Oh, this is union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. In fact, I'm not sure how many of the letters that Paul wrote begin with this language, but many of them do. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified... In Christ Jesus, shorthand for union with Christ. Here's Colossians 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 
Many and many other places, no more clearly anywhere than in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. In him, in Christ, all of these are describing this unity that we have with Jesus, which is the basis for and the means by which all the saving benefits of what Jesus did are brought to us. It is because we are in union with Christ. What does it mean? Here's here's, uh, David Needham's uh, definition, best one I know of. Simple. What was true of Jesus is true of us. What was true of Jesus is true of us. Now as we think about union with Christ, it's important to realize the first step in that union was a step that Jesus made. When did he make it? We call it Christmas. He was unified with us when he became a human being. When he came into this world and assumed a human body, Jesus, the Son of God, takes the first step in this union by becoming one with us in our humanity. In salvation, though, we unite with him. So to think of it this way, in the incarnation, Jesus unites with us. In salvation, we unite with him. Union with Christ is a kind of spiritual glue that we have with Jesus and where in the eyes of God and in his economy, in his way of reckoning things, whatever happened to Jesus, we were there with him. It is true for us. So when he died to sin... We died to sin. That's what Paul's referring to here. When he died on the cross, we died on the cross with him in the eyes of God. When he was buried and in that grave for three days, we were laying there with him. Why? Because we're in union with him. When he was resurrected on the third day, we were resurrected with him as well. In the eyes of God, that was the beginning of our new life in Jesus So everything that was true of Jesus is true of us. Now don't push that too far because it's not like we're members of the Trinity and we're sort of like divine or something like that. We're not. But in terms of salvation and the works of Jesus on our behalf, union with Christ is the means by which everything that he did now is true in the eyes of God for us. Are you with me? Okay. Now, you've likely celebrated this union, and you maybe have never thought about it. In fact, even today, in a sense, as we take communion, which I didn't think about this, but why do we call it communion? What are we celebrating as we take the bread and the cup? We are celebrating, obviously, the works of Jesus, but spiritually speaking, we are celebrating that we are in union with his death, burial, and resurrection. Another symbol, like baptism. So how did Jesus die, by the way, for sins not yet committed and sinners who haven't lived yet? The answer to that, by the way, shows that God can do things 
to save us before we even exist. And that truth might crack the door open for you maybe accepting the doctrine of election. Look out. But that's chapter 9. We're not there yet. Chapter 6 is where we're at right now. But we see even here that God can do things to save us before we even exist. And in the eyes of God to realize that as Christ hung on the cross, in his eyes, understanding salvation, we were united with him. And so Paul says, when Christ died, you died to sin too. You are in union with him. Do you not know all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 5, for if you've been united with him in a death like his, he, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, Baptized into Christ, united with Christ. They're all talking about the same thing, that we as Christians are in union with Jesus. And so Paul's response to the charge that, hey, what you're teaching means that if I go out and sin, God's grace superabounds, so let's go out and sin epically, his response is, Wait a second, do you realize that when Christ died, you died with him? How can you view this now as a means to exploiting an immoral behavior? How can you exploit grace? Don't you understand? You died to sin. In fact, we might say somebody that would view the gospel as a sort of way to get to do what I want and still go to heaven doesn't understand the gospel in the first place. To understand the gospel is to understand sin, my sin, Jesus' death. And so what Paul does here is he connects three key aspects of Jesus' work to our ongoing relationship to sin. Death, burial, resurrection. Just to see it clearly, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's the cross. We were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, there's resurrection. By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So my dear friend, when Jesus died, if you're a Christian here, you died to sin. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected too. And you live today in the same life that raised him from the dead, this resurrection Life, which Paul describes as walking in newness of life. Walking is a Jewish language for living, okay? How you live in newness of life. This explains a couple famous verses. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is, what? In Christ, in union with Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. Why? It died with Jesus on the cross. The new has come. Or how about this famous verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What? I was crucified with Jesus? How can that be? I'm like, he lived in, you know... 30, uh, 30 uh, A.D., and I, I, I'm like, you know, 2000 A.D. How can I have been crucified with Christ? This is nonsense. This is the sovereign God. And how the sovereign God in the mystery of his will and with power and glory that he alone has connected 
your sin and my sin to what Jesus did on the cross. That's how we did it. And the result of that is not only did I die to sin when he died, I was raised to a new life when he was resurrected from the dead. And I presently now have that new life. The new has come. And so these verses here, are, they're a key pivot point in the whole story of Romans. As Paul is explaining that justification by faith and salvation in Christ is not merely a forensic right standing before God, which it is that wonderfully and gloriously, but in terms of the Christian experience, it transforms us. We are different people. We're like a new creation because we died to the old way of life and we died to the old sin and now I am living out a real newness of life. The very life that Christ has right now at the right hand of God the Father is in seed form but there within every single Christian. It is a new life. It is not a life where sin is the master. No, it is a new life where Jesus is our master. And my whole relationship and posture to sin and the desires to sin is different. Yes, it's present in my life and it will be until I die and am glorified. But I no longer live with it as my king. King sin. Bow to king sin. No more of that. When I bow to it, I hate it later. Which is Romans 7. <laughs> That's coming up too. Paul addresses the future in verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, this union thing that we're talking about is not merely a past tense, which would be great if it just was that. If it just was that we were united with Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins, I mean, we're still singing, we're still taking communion, we're still like, this being a Christian is an awesome thing. But what Paul is going to say in these chapters is, now that we have been declared righteous, and now that by the Spirit he has done this work in our heart where we are now alive spiritually for the first time, the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves can be and ought to be more aligned with what looks like new life in Christ than the old way of life. We've been freed from that. Walk in newness of life. I'll just add this. Here's what Romans 8 is going to say, and this is why Romans 8 maybe is, I mean, arguably the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Union with Christ and what is true for Jesus is true for us it is the cross, it is the burial, it is the resurrection, it is our resurrection and glorification. But because we are in union with Christ, Romans 8 is going to say that we are co heirs. With Jesus. The inheritance that Jesus has as the Son of God, because we are in union with Him, is ours as well. I've never thought about this. Maybe the analogy doesn't work so well, but it's almost like, you know, if you were married to a, the, the, the son of the richest guy in the world or something like that, and, and, and you know that what he gets, I get. Is that good? It's not in my notes. I don't know. It just came to me right now. But that sense of like, inherit, he's going to inherit something, and because I'm in union with him, I'm going to inherit it too. That works, I think. I'm processing it in my mind. 
And we're not talking about material type things. We're talking about glorious, eternal, spiritual, glorious things that Jesus gets. We share with him in that. So this union thing is awesome. It's even better than the best restaurant you've never heard of. It's the best doctrine you've never heard of. Am I right with that, maybe? Okay, now, I have three illustrations to conclude, because I like Paul's sense I need an illustration here. So I have three illustrations just to help us get what union with Christ means. The first one is, I'm just going to draw on this illustration that I've been using uh, here in Romans. You remember I had ropes hanging from the ceiling to help us understand how we were in Adam, but now we are... We are tethered to Jesus. We are carabinered to Jesus. And I said, just imagine saving faith as you saying, you know what? I'm connected. I'm now connected to Jesus. Okay? I'm now connected to Jesus. And we said, this is what faith is. Okay? Faith. But the result is what Paul is talking about here, which is union with Christ. So that now in the eyes of God, because I'm carabinered to Jesus, when he died on the cross, I, I died with him. And if I had the, you know, the full illustration here, I'd have like a tomb. You know, when he was dead in the grave, I was, I was dead with him. And I'd have an empty grave, you know, with angels going to heaven or something. And I, I, I could say, because he was resurrected, I was resurrected with him. I am entirely bound up with the saving works of Jesus because I am in union with Christ. I am tethered to him. That's first illustration. Second illustration. Any happily married couples here? <laughs> okay. First service today, I literally, right over here, I saw a woman go, way up like this, uh, like, to her husband, and they're on their way to the hospital now with broken ribs, probably. God loves pictures. It helps us so much to understand spiritual truth. He's filled the world with little pictures of himself and different things we talk about. But did you know that by God's design, marriage is a picture of union with Christ? Okay? So we go to Ephesians 5. He's teaching about the role of the husband, the role of the wife. And then he says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You read Ephesians 5, you think he's talking about marriage, and then you find out that what Paul is actually talking about is the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church, or Christ and us. So what is marriage? Marriage is the unity of two very different people. The two have become what? what one, what God has brought together, let no, no man put asunder. So we find out that marriage is intended by God to help us understand what it means to be in union with Jesus. So that when you're married, everything that happens to the one kind of happens to the other. One spouse gets a raise at work, what do you say? We got a raise. The wife gives birth to a child, what do you say? We had a baby. Even some couples when they're pregnant, we're pregnant. She's pregnant, right? Well, no, we're pregnant. We're, all, we're kind of in this together. What happens to her happens to me. We are one in marriage. By God's design, a picture. Help us understand. I'm a sinner, but I am United with Jesus. Third illustration. The Greek word here for united, 
is the word that we get the word symphony from. And I was reading that and studying that, and it, it just, it reminded me of an experience that I had a few years ago. And uh, we, for, for many years, we hosted the Northwest Indiana Symphony. They'd have concerts here in our, uh, in our auditorium. And so uh, one of the nice things about that is, is the pastor, I got free tickets. So I attended uh, various symphonies. I always enjoyed them. And uh, because of that relationship as well, one year, this is back in like 2011, the symphony asked if I would narrate with the symphony Peter and the Wolf. Now, when they asked me that, I was totally honored, but I think I had to ask somebody, what's Peter and the Wolf? Well, it's a story about a little boy named Peter and a wolf. (laughs) Shocking, I know, isn't it? So I said that I would do it. I was actually uh, honored and I was excited about it. And so I showed up for the uh, rehearsal. And I was assuming that, because I've been to various productions and things, you have a narrator who's, you know, kind of over on the side. And then, you know, the thing's going on and the person narrates, the light goes on and the light goes off. I was thinking that. No, no, no. Narrating Peter and the Wolf, I was not uh, near the symphony. I was in the symphony. Like, I literally, this was the stage where it happened, right here. If the conductor is there, I was like right here. I had first violin to my right. I had the violin whole section around me. I am right in the midst of the entire symphony. And I'm here to tell you right now, there is a big difference between attending a symphony and being in the midst of a symphony. It was amazing, the sound that you had being right there. It was, when it was all done, I said, you should sell seats inside the symphony because Rich people would pay good money to be able to sit in the midst of a symphony and to hear all these instruments the way that you do when you are in the symphony. Now here's the the illustration. There are many people that are near unto Christ. They are near to Christianity. They're a husband whose wife's a faithful follower. Maybe they attend church or they... They, uh, they, they like Christianity because it teaches them how to have a better marriage or how to, you know, parent or whatever it is. They read books here or there. They're kind of, they're around uh, the, uh, Christianity, but they are not symphonic with Christ. They are not in the midst of, in the realm of, in the sphere of salvation with Jesus. And the difference between the two is Literally, heaven and hell. You are either in Christ or you are not. There is no like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in process here. This whole room divided into those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. And so you can't read a passage and think about the blessings of being united with Christ and not ask the question, am I in Christ? Are you presently, right now, In Christ, by personal faith in his work on the cross, trusting in him solely for your salvation, not meriting it because you're good, but seeing when he died on the cross, I died with him. When he was buried in the grave, I was buried with him. When he was resurrected from the dead, I was resurrected with him. And now I am living my life in newness of life, or not, which is true for you. And so today, I just, I hold out to you a a restaurant not yet discovered. 
a ring you need to put on, a tether that you need to carabine to Jesus. Don't attend the symphony, join the symphony. And all that was, is, and will be true of Christ will forever be true of you as well. Union with Christ, the greatest doctrine you've never heard of, but a wonderful doctrine indeed. Amen.